0: Bond,
1: James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, Bird never make nest in bare tree.
2: Just a slight stiffness coming on.
3: Your cellos are studied there. I'm just up here at Oxford brushing up on a little Danish. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 21. This is the hopefully humorous podcast here to highlight our humble and honest opinions on the hazardous happenings and harrowing hardships of the half holy man, half hitman. Yes, he's on hand to annihilate any heinous hostiles. It's the heroic heartthrob, James Bond 007. Greetings, one and all, to the Cubbyhole. Thanks for joining us on our special mission across the entire back catalogue of Bond movies and beyond. Your support is, as ever, very much appreciated. In fact, as we surpass several thousand total downloads, our opinion of you, our listenership, is almost as high as that halo jump in Tomorrow Never Dies. So thanks for the love and affection you've shown the podcast so far. As well as listening to the show, you can, of course, get more involved on social media. Head on over to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all our latest updates, quizzes, and general bond chat. If you have a question or discussion topic, then feel free to leave us a comment on any of those social media pages, or you can send us a direct email to rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com, and we'll feature you in a future Q branch, i.e. the questions branch segment. We're also keen on hearing your fan theories as well. Phil had his very own fan theory, which was uh, disproved rather conclusively, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, going back to our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 20, Die Another Day, Mockingly referred to as Buy Another Day for its over-the-top product placement. And it's a film viewed by the the general Bond community and the Cubby Hall hosting team as a rather embarrassing ending to an otherwise solid run of Bond films for Pierce Brosnan. So uh, in this episode, we say hello to Daniel Craig as Bond, the first actor not to be cast by Cubby Broccoli. uh, A fairly unpopular choice, at least by certain parts of the media back in 2006, His looks were questioned, his acting experience was questioned, even his hair colour came under scrutiny, with some dubbing him James Blonde. But uh, let's find out how he proved all the doubters wrong as we analyse Bond 21, Casino Royale. Judging the cinematic situation dispassionately, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who's a bit of a mathematical genius and likes to prove it by playing poker. He even hands out half a million dollar tip to the dealer when he wins big. It's Adam. How are you, Adam?
0: I'm very well. Thank you, Martin. I'm glad you spotted that half a million dollar tip to the dealer as well. I mean, that's an astonishing uh, salary for just a couple of nights work in the casino, isn't it? I'm in the wrong profession. Uh, I'm very good. Yeah. Back when the tabloids were just calling daniel craig james blonde and and of course now 14 years on still the longest serving of all the bonds probably the most critically successful of all of them that hasn't aged very well at all has it i think we've had a couple of um uh, updates actually going back to die another day uh, specifically i believe we've finally tracked down who the not christoph waltz is
3: we've got some correspondence from at behind the stunts on uh, on instagram and he directed us to the uh, the guy who actually was stuntman by the name of can't remember his name
0: <laughs> Cronolly. it was dave chronily that's dave Cronolly, not christoph waltz phil Phil, it's not Christoph Waltz. There is a right or wrong answer, and it's the wrong yes. answer.
2: Yes, we, we know this now. I do apologise for my ridiculous theory. I think this is the first of many ridiculous bomb theories that I can come out with.
0: Well, I believe our correspondents also said that uh, Dave Cronley might not be entirely flattered that you think he looks like Christoph Waltz. So I think you should take this opportunity now to apologise to Dave Cronley, stuntman Dave, for saying that he looks like Christoph Waltz.
2: I mean, I'm not sure if he'd want to be co- referred to as Stumpman Dave. I think he probably wants to be referred to as David co- Cronley, which is... His I
0: name. I bet all of his friends
2: call him Stumpman Dave.
3: They certainly don't call him Christoph Waltz, do they?
2: Well no, well, no. I'd be very surprised if they did. But yes, I would like to apologise then to Stumpman Dave slash Dave Cronley for suggesting that he ever looked like Christoph Waltz in Die Other Day. Okay.
3: And uh, secondly, it's the man who thinks of women as meaningful pursuits, not disposable pleasures, which is great news for Dame Judy. It's Phil. How are you, Phil?
2: Yes, I'm very good. Thank you, Martin. Um, really looking forward to delving into um, Casino Royale this week. As I've already mentioned, obviously it's great to hear from all our Cubbies and our um, Bond community. Thank you on Facebook for the new like from Crab Crush the Scene on Twitter. Thank you to Barry8892, Pablo Arrieta, Bond and Beyond, Shingo Shimizu and Vaughn Dawson for all your follows. We did, of course, get quite a few um, comments back about our Dying the Day episode. Obviously, a lot of the bang, uh, Bond community agree with with us that dying of the Day is an abomination just a really quick shout out to Don Knott on Facebook as well who got in touch with us just to say he's been listening back to a few of our previous episodes he particularly liked our Diamonds Are Forever episode and wondered if the more sort of camp style that came through with Roger Moore's era was based on some of the kind of world events that were happening at the time and maybe it was a bit more light relief for the franchise for the audiences maybe it was a bit more escapism so thank you to to you guys for uh, for your comments. And of course, if you listen to our do of the Day episode, you will remember that we asked for all our cubbies to try and do your best mashed potato sculptures or artwork. So please do keep sending those into our Twitter and Facebook pages.
3: Okay, thanks, Phil. I have to say my favourite part of the previous episode was your epic car rent. You hated the car chase, didn't you? Which, ironically, was one of the better parts of the film for me.
2: Yes, I mean, the trouble, with, again, I'm not going to get into it again, because I'll just get angry, but no, yes, the, the, there were flaws in that car chase. So I do understand people's view that it's probably one of the better parts of the film, but, but for me, there are, there are still problems.
3: Okay, so uh, let's get on to a good James Bond film, Casino Royale, over to Adam and Alan for their synopsis.
0: Thank you very much Martin. So, Casino Royale, the 21st James Bond film, based finally on the very first Ian Fleming James Bond novel. Martin Campbell of GoldenEye returns to direct once again, Daniel Craig takes on the role of 007 for the very first time. Uh, Oscar winning writer director Paul Haggis joins regular co writers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade on scripting duties. And Casino Royale is released in November 2006. That's 18 whole years after Pierce Brosnan's original breakout performance in the action classic Taffin.
1: Then maybe you shouldn't be living here.
0: Casino Royale is made on a budget of $150 million and goes on to gross $606.1 million. So once again, it breaks the record as the highest grossing Bond film, Unadjusted. But this is also a massive critical success. Everyone loved it. It made several critics' best films of the year list. And Daniel Craig became the first Bond actor to get a BAFTA Best Actor nomination for playing the role. So to hear about why this one might be so good, let's hand over to Alan.
1: We're in Prague in moody black and white. A man in a funny hat pops back to the office where Bond tells him he beat up a goober in a bog. Bond shoots him in the face and there's the gun barrel! Roll the hard rock titles! An African terrorist plays pinball. Bond wrecks half of Madagascar having a bash at parkour and breaks into Dame Judy Denture's swanky pad. How the hell does he know these things? Then he swans off to Thunderball Land to wreak bloody havoc, reversing into a bay extremely poorly, winning a wiry-haired scumbag's Aston at poker before bonking his missus and stabbing him at a Gunter Von Hagen show, then bankrupting the pinball-playing terrorist by ruining the bombing of a big, fat plane. M sends Bond to ruin on his uppers-terrorist banker Le Chiffre's multi-million dollar poker game in the most reckless and harebrained plan of all time. Bond engages in weapons-grade train banter with Vesper Lindt, I'd be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly-formed ass. Meet smooth silver fox Rennie Mathis, it's amazing what you can do with a Photoshop these days, and spends even more public money on a swanky dinner jacket and Aston. In the most eventful poker game ever played, Bond loses some money, drinks a ton of martinis, chucks pinball wizard terrorists down some stairs, ruins his outfit by sitting in a shower with Vesper looking moody, You've changed your shirt, Mr Bond, I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. Loses the rest of his money, hooks up with old Mucker Felix for the first time ever, nearly gets poisoned to death. That last hand nearly killed me. Finally beats Le Chifa, eats caviar at 4am, writes off the Aston, and gets his bollocks bashed in by Le Chifa's uber kinky monkey's fist, who then gets shot by boringly named baddie Mr White. Bond's balls grow back and he resumes his heavy flirting with Vespa. You know what I can do with my little finger. Then he falls in love with her, which of course means she'll be dead in 10 minutes. Yep, she's a traitor, so Bond lets off steam by sinking half of Venice. The job's done, the bitch is dead. Then he shoots Mr. White in the foot and finally gets to bloody save a line. The name's Bond, James Bond. The end. (laughs)
3: Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. So Casino Royale, we're back to the beginning for Bond, a hard reboot for the series. So uh, Daniel Craig, interesting, the the first actor to play Bond, who is younger than the series itself. And last time we said Roger Moore was unimpressed by Die Another Day. But for this one, he was certainly the opposite. Apparently, he went out immediately to buy the DVD after seeing it in the movie theatre. So this one, part of the reason for its success is the director having the return of Martin Campbell. Of course, he uh, rebooted the series successfully with Pierce Brosnan in GoldenEye. Uh, and I think he perhaps even surpasses his success in that film with this one. In that previous film, Die Another Day, from Lee Tamahori, it was very gimmicky, wasn't it? The the, the changes that were made felt tacked on and a bit weird. Uh, like we had the, the slow motion action, we had the the bullet down the gun barrel. Uh, whereas here we get similar changes were made, but instead they feel well-placed and interesting and, and fresh and new. So we had, the, of course, the black and white introduction. We had the uh, the missing gun barrel walk. Uh, so I felt like similar changes were made, but they were just so much better in this one. And uh, just overall, the film was excellent, I felt. I mean, stealing one of your phrases, Phil, I thought from, from start to finish, It was incredible. But uh, what did you reckon?
2: Yeah, I'd agree, Martin. I think looking back, it's astonishing to think just how important, really, this film was for the franchise. Because, you know, we talked about Dying of the Day in the last episode and how weak that was in terms of direction and um, the end product. This one, you know, there was so much expectation. There was so much that was riding on it for it to be, you know, people... It needed to be a commercial success and it needed to appeal to a new audience almost. And I think Martin Campbell was a brilliant choice to bring it back into line because, you know, you look at the way it's stylized, you look at the way it, the cinematography of it. I actually feel that there are a lot of similarities to things like on Imagine the Secret Service in the way that it's presented because of the way the set pieces of them, the way that it flows, the way that the cinematography just builds and builds and builds that we we should give, Martin Campbell a huge amount of credit because I think it's probably a stretch to say that he he saved the franchise but I think he certainly helped it to progress to a new audience and helped it to find its way again so I think that this was a really great decision and and you know I, I personally think this is another brilliant entry in the series perhaps not the best film of the, of the entire lot but certainly up in the top 10 for me I think it's it is a great entry.
0: I would go further than that actually, I would say that this is the best Bond film that's been made in our lifetime, albeit we don't go back as far as the start of the series, but I can't think of one that's been made while we've been alive, which is as good as this one. It's brilliant. It's such a subversive, radical reinvention of the series. It's a perfect blend or a near-perfect blend of a complex character drama and an exciting thriller. And it's just fantastic that they were bold enough to go with an origin story, to strip back and rebuild the character of Bond from scratch, but also just the very idea of the Bond film itself. And I totally agree with what you're saying. Martin Campbell was just the perfect man for this. He has that same dynamic, kinetic, punchy direction that he brought to gold and I it's a fast film the camera is constantly moving so it's energizing and adrenalizing every sequence every shot but when you get to the latter half of the film he's almost got that sense of elegance and sophistication and economy that Terence Young had in the very first Bond films it has that same high style to it so absolutely he deserves a huge amount of credit for how good this one is as do the writers. Paul Haggis um, comes in to help write the script, and he's a really celebrated screenwriter. Uh, and they do two very important things. First of all, this is very faithful to Fleming's original, which we'll get onto later. But they actually invert the classic structure of a Bond film. Normally, the first half of a Bond film is character-driven, and you're getting to grips with the story and what's going on. And then the latter half is all the big action sequences that we're waiting for. This film flips out on its head. You have all the main action sequences in the first half of the film. And then after that, it becomes pretty much a pure character study. I mean, we are playing poker in Casino Royale for a very long time, but it means you become fully engrossed in the drama of the story. And it means it leaves such a greater dramatic impact than you get from pretty much any Bond film since On Her Majesty's, I would say.
3: Yeah, it's very hard to imagine where they would have gone with it had they not reset the series and put it back to the beginning. Because I'm not sure where you go from Die Another Day. Uh, if you don't go back to the start, they'd kind of reached the peak of silliness, hadn't they? And uh, and it might not have worked if they'd have done anything else.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think it's, again, it's it's kind of difficult to see what they could have done. Yeah, you know, because we mentioned in the previous episode, the fact that the action sequences were so over the top in dying of the day it just became farcical and again it probably alienated a lot of Bond, particularly young bond fans who you know if that was their first experience of the bond franchise you know you, you you're going to be put off it whereas if your first experience of some, as, a, as was ours was kind of golden eye that was you know a brilliant way to be introduced to the series
0: Yeah, on the Die Another Day contrast, we talked about how dated it looks now because of the direction and because of that overuse of CGI. You watch Die Another Day and it feels early noughties. It feels like a film made when it was made. You watch this again and it looks like it was made yesterday. Like, it could have come out pretty much at any point in time over the last 30 years, which is a good thing because it's not going to age at all. Martin, you were talking about where you'd have gone had you not done this after Die Another Day. Probably similarly to what you did with Timothy Dalton in terms of just going down a much more realistic, harder edge and perhaps a more world-weary spy. But credit to the producers, they always know in Bond when they've dropped the ball a bit and they always come back with a bang with the next film. So The Man with the Golden Gun is followed by The Spy Who Loved Me, A View to a Kill is followed by The Living Daylights and Die Another Day is followed by Casino Royale. They always admit when they've got it wrong creatively and they always come back with something really special as a result.
2: Should we talk about Daniel Craig in terms of his his introduction to the franchise? Because I think that Daniel Craig actually brings a new dimension to the the role of Bond in terms of the way he plays. I know we've um, all kind of credited Timothy Dalton for for kind of introducing the harder Bond, but obviously Daniel Craig in this one there was a lot of pressure on him because you know it's it's a really you know probably the biggest role he's had to date, and it was it was kind of you know there was a lot of expectation on him. Of how he was going to present it and i think that he does a really really grounded performance and a really really gritty performance as well there's real sort of empathy and there's real sort of anger behind his performance at certain points so i i'd credit daniel craig i think this is you know he really breathes new energy into the role of bond in this one
3: yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Dalton there, Phil. I think Dalton gets a lot of credit for going back to the source material, doesn't he? But apparently Daniel Craig did the same thing before starting shooting on Casino Royale. He read all the Fleming books. He also consulted with some uh, intelligence officers from Britain and Israel that he'd consulted with uh, on, I think, the the film Munich. Uh, so uh, he, he really did his research for the role, and I think he is... For me, he does remind me of Dalton, the very serious, grittier Bond, but he's able to do a bit of comedy as well. So I I think Dalton has proved that he can do comedy later in his career, but I was never impressed with his one-liners, whereas uh, Craig can do serious uh, and light-hearted.
0: Yeah, Dalton does very much, um, I guess, set the foundations of what Craig does in this film. He has that same hard edge and that same sense of psychological realism. But I think where Daniel Craig perhaps surpasses Dalton is he's also bringing in the humanity and the vulnerability of George Lazenby's performance. But also because it's an origin story, he has gifted this opportunity to actually build up the layers of the character of James Bond as he is created through this story. So he's building this character from start to finish and all the classic elements we expect from a James Bond, he's introducing them before your eyes. He learns to be the gentleman spy and he learns to be the Bond character we all know and love throughout the course of the film. So that by the end, he's in the suit. He's done the cool moment where he shot Mr. White from a distance and then just slowly looms over him. He finally gets to save a line because at that moment, because of what's happened in the film... He has become Bond.
3: Well, do you reckon we should uh, should we firstly mention the uh, the pre-title sequence? This one very short, but uh, packs a punch, doesn't it? I think the I uh, mentioned the black and white introduction kind of harkens back to some other scenes we've seen from previous films of removing the bullets from a gun, taking out the uh, the enemy in the pre-title sequence. I think it's really good that the gun barrel is incorporated into the action. Uh, and that we, for the first time, we see the enemy that Bond is taking out. And then that goes into that incredible, I think it's the best title sequence of the whole franchise, in my opinion. Just really, really excellent. We've got some subtle references. Eva Green's face as their crosshairs move across the uh, the Queen of Hearts slash spades. I can't, uh, can't speak highly enough of this one.
2: Yeah, I'd agree, Martin. I think that opening is really, really well thought out, the fact that, you know, it's just it feels like more sort of a Cold War almost style beginning to the film. Obviously, you know this setting where it's all black and white, and it's it feels very sinister. Where you know there's this sort of shady character that's moving through an office space, and you're not really sure what what's going to happen next. There's there's no sort of shouting or um, you know anger. It's it's very very subtle the way that it's presented, and then also you cut back to that brilliant action sequence where it's the henchman that's sent to kill Bond and obviously Bond kind of gets the upper hand on him but there's great little moments in that, the fact that when the gun fires it actually shatters the porcelain sink and things like that even little moments like that are just brilliantly thought out and I agree Martin That open, those opening credits where you've got all the casino spins and obviously the, the cards that then become sort of razor sharp daggers that then sort of try to slice at Bond and things like that and it's just great little designs that, that all work towards the start of the film I, I think it is superb Yeah, Daniel
0: Kleinman, I think, designed those opening credits. He does a lot of them from, I think, uh, the Brosnan era onwards, and they are terrific. And of course, Chris Cornell's You Know My Name, the song as well. It's the first really hard rock Bond theme we've had probably since Live and Let Die, and it just goes hand in hand with delaying the gun barrel with that black and white photography to just set out the radical, subversive stall of this film. It's a great opening sequence. It's a triumph for both Martin Campbell and Daniel Craig. Campbell, on the one hand, is contrasting the scene in The Office, just the two-handed dialogue scene, which has the atmosphere of a From Russia With Love or even a John le Carré Cold War thriller. But it's contrasted, like you say, Phil, with this incredibly hard-edged fistfight, this really brutal, violent clash, you know, and Daniel Craig in terms of the physicality he brings to the role the reaction after he kills the guy in the bathroom it's his first kill in context this is the first time james bond has killed a man And there's a look as he's panting and he's looking down at the body. You know this kill is going to stay with him forever. It's going to haunt him, the fact that it was so hard. And yet in terms of him building up that character before our eyes, the ease with which he then shoots the guy in the office and the little quip afterwards, that's the first, even on kill number two, Bond is becoming Bond. So right from this opening sequence, we've set the stall for just what this film's going to do and how smart it is.
2: After the kind of opening credits, we moved to Bond kind of on his very first mission in the field. And obviously we're we're kind of in an African nation where we're infiltrating a bomb maker. And you get that great opening sequence where there's the sort of snake pit where it's the um the snake versus I believe the mongoose where they're they're both fighting. And it's that great sequence. One slight area that I wanted to pick up on was the fact of how useless is Agent Carter in that opening sequence. It's like if I was in the field. He's literally got his hand to his ear for a good 30 seconds and he, he just doesn't twig that the the, the, te- the bomber is actually looking for him while he's got an earpiece in.
0: I don't think he's the worst field operative ever. Let's uh, not forget Mary Goodnight in The Man with the Golden Gun. It's actually the first of a series of incidents in this film where we've talked about Daniel Craig is becoming James Bond. He's also having to learn to become a spy. And one of the running jokes in the film is he's a terrible spy, even at the end. Every time he tries to trail someone in this film, James Bond, he is identified by them. He cannot stay incongruous or discreet at all. Every single person he's
3: following spots him at some point. Well, we have seen all the other 00 agents are not particularly great, are they, at their job? At least there's not There's not VJ there doing a little tune for the uh, the cobra snake. But uh, as to the actual action, I think it's really excellent, that chase, kind of involving parkour running at the construction site. I think the camera angles I picked up on were quite impressive. It was quite dizzying, even watching the scene. You know, we're quite a long way away from CGI kite surfing here, aren't we? It's, it feels very real, jumping, it feels death-defying. Uh, so yeah, it was a really exciting, after that brilliant opening, and then we get this scene at the beginning. So I think, Adam, you're completely right, that the action is, is quite impactful at the, the start of the film. And it's uh, similar to GoldenEye. Some of the scenes where he's driving through the construction site and kind of smashes through the wall, that reminded me of the uh, the tank chase. And also just little elements of comedy as well. The guy jumps for a tiny little gap and uh, Bond just smashes through the uh, the pasta board. Uh, So yeah, excellent, really exciting stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of that. It's very deliberately an action sequence which has zero gadgets in it and zero vehicles in it. It's perhaps a bit influenced again by the Bourne films, which uh, Paul Greengrass is doing an incredible job with um, contemporaneously to this. But you're right as well, Martin. It introduces this scene, not only the physicality, the enhanced physicality of Craig's performance, but also his sense of humour and the fact that actually he's going to do a lot of it through reactions and not through cheesy one-liners. Of course, the smashing through the walls because he can't really match the guy for parkour skill. And also things like later on when uh, Mendel, the the Swiss banker, comes to see him in the clinic and he has that little uh, chuckle and Bond just kind of does a little, you know, exasperated reaction to Vesper, which is funnier than any one-liner he could ever have said.
2: I also quite like the sense that that sequence ends where obviously the bomber basically thinks he's, he's home and dry by getting into the embassy and he thinks he's safe there. But obviously that kind of shows his naivety at the start where obviously M then becomes very angry in the, the fact that he then blows up an embassy. And it's a great way to kind of start that sense that, you know, Bond is kind of already in the wrong because of the fact he's made this kind of unparalleled mistake. You know, you don't go to an embassy and kill someone. That is just that is not approved of at all under any circumstances. Do you guys think that, that kind of sets the rest of the film up, that he kind of has to defend himself?
0: yeah absolutely the whole parkour action sequence is deliberately chaotic and a bit out of control because bond doesn't have the mastery that bond normally has in action sequences yet he's only just become a double o he doesn't quite know what he's doing yet and it it fits with that uh, trajectory that the character builds and becomes bond as the film goes on but you're right to bring in that sequence afterwards with m in the flat and i think this is one of the best standout sequences in the film. It doesn't really make any sense that Judy Dench is still in this film as M, being that she was M through the Brosnan film, and has now completely changed in that, you know, previously it was Bond who was the Cold War dinosaur. In this scene, the first time we see her, she says, Christ, I missed the Cold War. So now it's M who is kind of the Cold War veteran. So there's kind of been a bit of a 360 flip there. But what it does mean is that you can rebuild that relationship between Bond and M, reset it and actually recreate it into something that's much more human and fascinating. This is a less icy and much more emotional performance from M in the role. I don't know if you guys feel the same way.
3: Yeah, I'd certainly go along with that. I think the it's interesting, the dynamic of, uh, of the whole MI6 operation as well. Of course, we don't get anyone like Sir Freddy, uh, but I do quite like M's line about her superiors being self-righteous, ass covering prigs it was an excellent line, I thought. Probably Martin Campbell's not uh, responsible for those lines, but uh, that reminded me of Goldeneye, those excellent kind of one-liners that we get. Yeah, so you, you get a sense that M wants to be on Bond's side, She's not happy with the overall organisation, but uh, Bond certainly has to earn that respect from her.
1: You've got a bloody cheek.
3: Sorry. I'll shoot the camera first next time.
1: Or yourself. You stormed into an embassy. You violated the only absolutely inviolate rule of
3: international relationships. And why? So you could kill a nobody. We wanted to question him, not to kill him. For God's sake, you're supposed to display some kind of judgement.
1: I did. I thought that one less bomb maker in the world would be a good thing. Exactly.
3: One bomb maker. We're trying to find out how an entire network of terrorist groups is financed, and you give us one bomb maker. Hardly the big picture, wouldn't you say? The man isn't even a true believer. He's a gun for hire. And thanks to your overdeveloped trigger finger, we have no idea who hired him or why. And how the hell did you find out where I lived? Same way I found out your name. I thought M was a randomly assigned letter. I had no idea it stood for- Utter one more syllable and I'll have you killed. I knew it was too early to promote you. Well, I understand double O's have a very short life expectancy, so your mistake will be short lived.
2: So of course, after that point, Bond has had his dressing down and he's already got information start infiltrating the main villain for the film. So obviously we then see him travel to Nassau do you think that is a is a good way for it to set up obviously the fact that you know there's there's this poker game that Bond has to to go into and then obviously there's there's the interaction with kind of one of the henchmen
0: I'd go even further, actually, than saying this sets up um, the rest of the film. It's a more small-scale version of everything Bond is going to have to face later on, with much higher stakes. So it's a strange kind of dress rehearsal. There is the fact that he has to win this poker game against a villain. The fact that he has a knife fight, obviously, in the, the Body Works exhibit, as opposed to on the staircase when they're tumbling down it um, uh, with the, uh, the African terrorist. There is the idea of a vehicular action sequence taking place on the airport runway, as opposed Opposed to, you know, the Aston Martin having to, to chase La Chiffre, having kidnapped Vespa, the fact that Bond has to seduce um, someone, a woman who is associated with the enemy, and that this seduction ends in her death. And that seduction with solange is very interesting because it's quite clumsy he he starts off being incredibly charming and incredibly kind of debonair but his questioning of her during their lovemaking is is strangely awkward it's it's very blunt and on the nose oh is is he bad because of like his, his work is bad or so he's again it's that sense of him learning to be bond of learning how to seduce people
3: yeah, I think that that lovemaking scene was almost as awkward going all the way back to Live and Let Die, Roger Moore with Solitaire. Of course, that that was probably Roger Moore getting used to the role, wasn't it? Whereas this one is more deliberately Bond get, finding his feet, so to speak, in in the bedroom.
0: And of course, it's the one thing that Bond doesn't learn throughout the course of this film is that emotional detachment. He starts with it. He's not particularly bothered when she turns up dead, or at least he's able to not betray that to M, who herself remarks at just how cold-hearted he is at the discovery of her body. And of course, that's the thing he gets wrong later on. He gets too close to the woman he's seducing. Not that he knows she's a villain at that point, but of course she is in league with the the enemy as it turns out. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I have to say I was really quite impressed by the airport chase as well, minus the stupid inclusion of Richard Branson as a cameo if you saw him going through the airport security. Uh, But the actual chase itself was, uh, was quite good. It felt real, didn't it? even though it was quite outlandish with the uh, airport control having a nightmare allowing the planes to land when they've got a massive emergency on the ground. Uh, but it allowed for some flying police car action, which ended, of course, in that little cheeky grin that we get when Bond has uh, attached the detonator to the bad guy. So uh, just excellent, I thought, that that one as well.
2: Again, yeah, and going back to the sense that actually that is a good use of CGI. Obviously, again, we mentioned in Dino the other day that it was used quite poorly. In this one, it doesn't detract from the action, so it's used as a as a kind of an accompanying editing technique. There's a real attention to detail with what they were doing with it, and it, and it kind of shows. It is a really great sequence, and this is again the reason why a lot of the bomber films are so good is because the action builds upon itself. So, you know, it starts out really well, and then obviously it builds and builds and builds. So I think it was a really great sequence to progress that part of the film.
0: I think also the important thing about this sequence is that it pays very specific reference to 9-11 and the fact that this scheme of Le Chiffre's is to drive up or to make a huge amount of money on the stock market by driving down airline stocks through this terrorist attack, something that was mooted to have been behind 9-11, if you believe in conspiracy theories anyway. And part of the problem the producers had with of the Day was knowing that it it came a year after 9-11 and they felt tonally it just wasn't in sync with where the world was at that point. And that's part of why this film is in the style that it is. It is much grittier. It's much more in tune with terrorism and with that shadowy evil that we are now facing in the world. Uh, so while we've now mentioned La should we talk about uh, this main villain in the film? A very different kind of Bond villain, I think, to what we've seen before uh, and, and brilliantly played by Mass Mikkelsen. Before he was famous, I guess, he'd, he'd sort of been doing a few early films with Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, but he wasn't, you know, TV's Hannibal or the guy from the Carlsberg adverts yet. What do we make of Lashif in this one?
2: Oh, I really enjoy Mads Mickelson in this film. I think it was a great choice to cast him as Lashif because there's there's that mix of sort of menacing evil behind him, but there's also that sort of obviously we get this later in the film, but he's kind of he's quite cowardly in terms of he's, he's not really capable, he's not like a megalomaniac in the sense that. You know, he's, he's got this grand plan to to destroy the world. He's, he's literally just an accountant, almost, for the world's terrorists. And, you know, it's it's the sense that, you know, it goes back to those sort of more classical Bond villains, the sense that, you know, he's a mathematical genius and he has, you know, this way of being able to tell people's flaws and, and that, you know, he uses poker almost as his weapon because, it you know, he makes people feel vulnerable and feel exposed. So I think it's a great portrayal from Mickelson.
3: Yeah, I think I'd go along with that, Phil. I think he does a great job both at the uh, the casino table, the tells that he's tricking Bond with and the uh, the flicking of the chips. God, that would be annoying, wouldn't it? If you were doing four hours of poker and he's flicking those chips all the time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think he does a great job. And, and you get the, obviously, obviously the Bond villain has to have some kind of defect. So he's got the, the bleeding eyes and uses the inhaler. But I think the pinnacle of his performance is that very... Very uncomfortable torture scene that uh, every every man winces once uh, that one's begun. And I think just the, the sweating of that scene is incredible. Both of them, Craig and Mads Mikkelsen, really, really sell that scene. It's so uncomfortable. It's so gritty and realistic.
0: I think there's a great homoerotic uh, subtle chemistry running throughout the whole film between Bond and Le Chiffre. Not that either of the characters are gay, but just in the subtlety of their behaviour with each other during the poker game itself. You've mentioned the little tells. I think there's a, a chemistry in that, that they both acknowledge the skill and the quality of each other. And in the torture scene, that homoerotic tension blows up into the comedy that is running through that scene you know Bond getting him to scratch his balls and, and La Chiffre sort of enjoying that reaction and that comedy is really important because otherwise like you say that torture scene would just be too grim and too
2: wince inducing. Well I think this is also where you get the great sense of mind games between the two characters because you know Bond thinks he's got the upper hand on Lashifa, and obviously Lashifa kind of knows his flaws and his weaknesses you know and and they they kind of play on each other and there's that great there's even great moments where obviously where bond is there's the arrogance there where obviously where bond checks into the hotel with vespa linden and, and literally goes um you know it's, it's not beach, it's bond you know the fact that he actually just gives his name already and says to vespa you know well he, if he's got all the contacts we think he has he'll already know who i am and what i'm here for I, I think that Daniel Craig and, and Mads Mikkelsen both deserve credit for the way they build that that tension between the two characters, and that real hatred between the two characters.
0: Mickelson has some fantastic reactionary moments as well. Just that little oops when he bankrupts Bond uh, having, you know, done the little trick with uh, doing his tell. And then just his faces when Bond returns to the table when he thinks he's finally got rid of him. Once when he buys back in and the other when he thinks he's gone off and been poisoned to death. There's a lovely little escalation in just how distressed and desperate those reactions from Le Chiffre are as, as one plan after another just completely backfires on him.
3: I do wonder we get, of course, the return of Felix Leiter, uh, which I quite like a nice little addition. But what was his plan if Bond hadn't have joined the tournament? What was Leiter going to do? <laughs> he was losing all his money.
0: Oh yeah, it's Felix Leiter is back and he is still completely useless. He loses all of his money, gives Bond his buy-in. He's just sat there with that glum hangdog expression throughout the entire game. He's directly funded terrorism to the tune of $10 million. And then at the end, he doesn't even do the thing Bond wants him to do. He doesn't bring in Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre gets away and nicks Vesper. What's Felix doing at that point? Is, is he just like having a little another martini? Because Bond's ordered so many, he's gotten everyone entirely smashed at this point.
2: I think he was. I think by this point, Felix is just propping up the bar at one end. He's just, you know, he's had so many vodka martinis, he's just legless and can't, can't even work out where Le Chiffre is. That's, that's how bad it's gone.
3: Although he's probably not my the most annoying character in the casino scenes. I think that would go to Mathis, who is just there for exposition to explain to the audience what's happening in the poker game. But he's, in the story, he's saying it to Vesper. And she must be like, I know how this works. You know, I'm invested in this story. (laughs) I know how poker works, mate.
0: Um, It is a shame that Mathis is used in this way because I actually really like him. Uh, I think he has that same roguish charm as Kerim Bay and Columbo in uh, For Your Eyes Only. The idea that he could be Bond himself, but in 20 years' time, always the classic sign of a great Bond ally. And it's great casting on that level as well, because Giancarlo Giannini in the 1970s was the, the actor of choice for Lena Wertmuller, a very acclaimed female director, the first woman to be nominated for the Best Director Oscar, I think. But in a lot of those films, he is playing quite a macho, sort of masculine, very male, aggressive character. And so in the 70s, he could almost have been the Italian James Bond had there been a sort of rival Italian series. And so he's great, sort of metatextual casting for this role. 115 million in the pot. On a serious level with the poker game, though, I think the whole sequence is, is phenomenal. And we talked a little bit about the influence of Hitchcock on the early Bond films. This is itself like a prolonged Hitchcockian sequence of mounting suspense and releases which increase the tension and get more and more dynamic as they go along. We talked about that um, ski action sequence in For Your Eyes Only, where it just felt like things bolted together and there was no real progression. In the poker game everything progresses absolutely brilliantly starting with you know the, the fact that bond loses a bit of money to increasing it to the action sequence on the staircase increasing it to bond getting completely wiped out increasing it to bond getting murdered getting the ecstatic high of him winning it but then vesper is kidnapped the whole half an hour or however long it is sequence builds absolutely brilliantly
2: yeah, I think there are great little bits of interplay as well. Obviously, the bit where, you know, Bond kind of asks Vespa to, to distract everyone by walking in front of them. And obviously, she gets it wrong almost, you know, so she she walks past them all. And then he has to kind of do another distracting tactic by obviously ordering the drink. And then it kind of, it obviously irritates um, Le Chiffre because everybody wants the same thing, you know. Everybody's like, oh, actually, I might, I might like that. So I think there's just, again, there's great little moments of interplay during the play. And obviously you've got the sequences towards the end where you're not really sure who's going to win it in many. So obviously, you know, eventually the Bond will, but there's that great moment where everybody's got a great hand and it's you think, well, well, hang on, is Bond actually going to be able to pull this off? Yeah.
3: I think the, the building of tension again, links back to Martin Campbell's previous entry, Goldeneye, doesn't it? The, the tension ramping up and even the, I think he did lots of research in kind of old classic movies that included poker games so he he creates that tension on the table, but then the tension isn't released during the break time. The break time, it gets even worse, doesn't it? It ramps up and uh, it gets worse for Bonds. So just excellent, I thought, the, the actual game, but then broken up by these incredibly suspenseful action scenes.
0: Yeah, it just ratchets it up and up and up until we can't take any more. And then it keeps on ratcheting it further. But at the same time there are the light relief moments as well and those light relief moments are important not just for giving us a bit of release from the tension but it's in those moments that bond is becoming bonds the fact that um you know vespers eyed him up on the train and has tailored him a James Bond proper dinner jacket, a real tuxedo, that he orders a drink and it's the vodka martini. And the fact that he's in such control at the table, or for the most part at the table, he has become the gentleman spy, even as that scene is progressing.
2: We sort of touched on um, Vesper, Vespers, obviously played, played by Eva Green, which again, I think was a great casting choice for this one. I think, Adam, you could probably correct me on this, but I think she was sort of more of an indie film kind of, actress i have a controversial state as well i know for many episodes i've often i've also said that um diana rigg is my favorite bomb woman of the lot i think after rewatching watching casino royale i think this may have changed i actually think i prefer eva green as perhaps my favorite bomb woman of them all what do you guys think do you think Vesper is um you know a good addition to the film
0: yeah, absolutely. I'd, I would completely agree with that. I think Eva Green is is stunning in this. She'd done a few smaller sort of European films before. She'd notably worked with uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, the great Italian director, in in one of his not particularly good films. But anyway, she was um very much an actor on the rise. In fact, I think she won the BAFTA for Rising Star on the, the back of this performance, if I remember. But yeah, she she's phenomenally good in this. The fact that she is an equal of James Bond, not just in terms of stature at b- the Treasury, but also in terms of character she's spiky with him she's haughty she's quite intimidating for him to talk to she matches his acerbic wit the chemistry of their erotic tension is kind of merged with this sense of screwball comedy on the train and like when she walks away from that conversation when they first meet on the train and bond stands up daniel craig has this reaction where he almost breathes a bit of a sigh of relief it's been a real test of his charm it's a brilliantly layered performance of double meanings as well, because when you watch it through for the second time, and you know that she's in this position where because of the enemy's hold over, she has to betray Bond, even as she's falling in love with him. Uh, and it's it's just a brilliant piece of acting, I think.
3: Yeah, I think the the emotional turmoil is played excellently by Eva Green when after that stairwell fight where Bond has to choke out the enemies. I think the, we see the, her real inner conflict, and it's Quite interesting that Bonds notices that as well. He's he's perceptive enough to realise there's something hidden about this character that he's never going to find, or eventually he does find out after she dies. But yeah, I think she does an excellent job. And also incredible, on the, the trivia that I read, somebody who auditioned for this role was Ellen DeGeneres. What a different film that would be if Ellen played Vesper Lind.
2: Yeah, that would have been a bizarre I'm I'm glad they went with Eva Green on that basis, that would have been a very odd dynamic.
0: Apart from the airport chase, I guess we've not seen any of the classic Bond spectacle in this film they've very deliberately saved the most spectacular big epic action sequence with the collapsing building into the grand canal until the very end but of course the emotional impact of, of what happens in that is, is is far greater than than the thrill of the action and, and is meant to be so uh, what do we think to the whole venice sequence i i think it's a, a brilliant ending
2: yeah, I'd agree. And, and again, it kind of calls back to the scenes from Older Majesty's Secret Service, you know, that emotion that Lazenby portrays when Tracy gets shot. And it's that sense, you know, that Bond, you know, he's, he's aware that he's been betrayed, but he almost can't bring himself to, you know, leave Vesper to die in, in the lift. So, you know, he's, he, even to the end, he's trying to save her. And also she, she feels so awful that she then, you know, doesn't want him to get into the lift. And you then also get that the sinister element of that, the fact that Mr. White is just behind the cornea, this sense that that no matter what Bond does or what Vesper always did, she was always being watched. It's not a big action set in terms of things like we've seen in Tomorrow Never Dies, where obviously we've got the stealth boat, but it's a great sequence in terms of again the mix of actual physical action and the CGI, obviously, where the, the building is sinking into the river.
3: It's such a complex relationship, isn't it, that's been developed. And uh, even though Vesper's character is only introduced after about one hour of the film, so similar to when Jinx Johnson appears in Die Another Day, and uh, their impact is very, very different. Um, so I think, yeah, the complex relationship really works well. And then when, of course, she decides to uh, not allow Bond to save her in the lift, there's a sense that she is, she has been a double agent, but it's kind of been against her will, hasn't it? And she has helped Bond along the way she's tried to help him as much as possible by bargaining for his life so Mr. White doesn't shoot him and kind of helping him along the way giving him some clues to what's happening so uh, yeah I think it's a really tender moment as you mentioned Phil yeah similar to On Her Majesty's and actually people just generally people who are not Bond fans who I've talked to about this film they always remember that scene of Vesper dying in the elevator so that must be the kind of the the biggest impact I feel of, uh, of the film.
0: And it's really visually shocking as well. Campbell holds the camera underwater and you literally watch her taking in the water. You have to watch her drowning and you have to watch her eyes widening as she almost realises death is coming to her. It's a really tough scene to watch. And of course, afterwards, Daniel Craig's reaction, that, that look of pure inchoate rage when he realises he's unable to save her. What it also introduces is the last sort of piece in the jigsaw that is James Bond, which is it adds that tragic dimension to him, the fact he fell in love and was betrayed. It explains the misogyny of the character going forward in terms of classic Bond in any case.
3: Yeah, and I think encapsulated by Craig's final lines of saying the bitch is dead really ties that up, doesn't it, and brings us to the, the, the Bond character that we know okay so uh, let's head over now to the cars and gadgets section so over to phil obviously bond starts rather modestly in this film so uh where do we go with the cars and gadgets phil can you swim (laughs)
2: Yeah, thanks very much, Martin. So we do get a few little nice touches um, in terms of the cars that Bond uses. So obviously Martin Campbell famously brought the Aston Martin DB5 back um, for Pierce Brosnan in Goldeneye. It also returns in this film for Daniel Craig, albeit a little bit differently. In this one, obviously he wins it as a poker game. Interestingly enough, if you listen to the the actual stakes of that game, it was for a $20,000 bet that the henchman was betting for. Now, interestingly enough, the Aston Martin DB5 at that period of time would have probably cost upwards of $150,000. So you're talking, it's very much over over what he needed to bid, really. So it's quite strange that he would risk such a classic car on on a poker game. So for this film, there were two other cars that James Bond got to drive. At the time, the brand-new Mark IV Ford Mondeo and the brand new Aston Martin DBS. Now both of these cars at this time were pre-production so they didn't actually get released until a year later. Also the Ford Mondeo has been largely sort of moaned about by kind of Bond fans because of the fact of why is Bond effectively in a a, um, kind of a retmobile. There have been a few theories that obviously this was kind of a rental car that he probably used to get around Nassau. But the car everybody kind of remembers this film for is of course the aston martin dbs we've all we've mentioned the callbacks to um on a Magic secret Service and of course, in that film we had the original aston martin dbs the nineteen sixty nine model in this one this is the twenty first century version, so this is based kind of loosely on the vanquish so it uses the same engine. It's also got a much more advanced drive train and chassis and kind of real-world drive setup. So, much more advanced kind of where Aston Martin are feeling they want their brand to go in the future. Uh, the only real thing that Bond uses in the car is, of course, the survival kit, which helps him to survive when he's poisoned. He then also uses it later in the film to save Vespa. So, when he's chasing Le Chiefra and his henchmen through the, the narrow, winding roads of Montenegro. And interestingly enough, obviously, that is one of the most iconic sequences in a Bond film where the Aston Martin flips. So that was a new world record. The car flipped over seven times and that was used during a nitrous cannon. For me, that's one of the most memorable scenes in the Bond films because of the fact that it's, um, it's actually one of the few moments in the cinema where I've audibly gasped. And said a word that I can't repeat on this podcast because it was so astonishing at the time. You know, you see, even now you see that scene where the car flips over so violently, and it's such an iconic part of of the film franchise and and kind of one of the memorable moments of of Daniel Craig's time as, as Bond and and you know the Aston Martin itself. Um, so now on to the gadgets. Again, we've said that there's not really a huge focus on the gadgets, but what they do try and use in this film is much more focus on mobile phones. So Sony Ericsson had a partnership deal where they got to feature their K800 and M800 mobiles in the f- film. We also get Omega return with their Seamaster watches, so Bond has that great interaction between Vespa Lind on the train and there's also um, the only real villain's device is of course the explosive keychain which is again activated by a mobile phone and obviously bond uses that to um to prevent the plane from being blown up in the airport in this one interestingly we we, again we're starting to see a bit more science fiction obviously mi6 seems to have more of the gadgets in this one so obviously they m has her own sort of bedside laptop that neatly folds away into the cabinets And there's also a lot more technology that can sort of track bond. So obviously we see in NASA where he gets the microchip in his arm, which in the end kind of saves his life because it's almost a distress signal that he can send to MI6 when he's been poisoned. So that was a really, really quick run through of some of the gadgets and um, the cars that we used during the filming.
0: Well, I do remember seeing this with you in the cinema. We bumped off uh, school, as I remember, to go and watch it the afternoon it came out. I don't quite remember your um, expletive reaction to uh, the flipping car. But I do think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the most spectacular car shot in the whole series, pretty much since The Man with the Golden Gun and that 360-degree corkscrew jump.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a genius um, piece of special effects, and obviously there's there's a huge credit to the stunt team for you know having that having that thought process of how they wanted to put it together. And again, it's all done for real. They did that at the Milbrook proving ground in Bedfordshire. They didn't know obviously how the, the stunt would go at first because, as I said, in the first take, they actually found that the car just spun out of control. So they then had to go back to the drawing board and actually think, well, you know, if you want this car to flip. Over, we're going to have to, you know, completely build a shell that's, you know, reinforced and, and strengthened to protect the the stuntman, and also one that's got a nitrous cannon that can literally flip it over without us having to risk um, the camera crew and, and other members of the the teams.
3: Uh, return now to buy the book. So over to you, Adam. What are the links to the novel? Why
1: don't you acquaint yourself the manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. <laughs> Just took a few seconds, Q.
0: Thank you very much, Martin. Yes, we have returned to Fleming's novels in a big way. This is the most faithful adaptation of an Ian Fleming novel pretty much since On A Majesty's Secret Service. The opening sequence is inspired by the second chapter of the book, in which again, we learn that uh, Bond has only just qualified as a double O and we're given the story of his first two kills. Beyond that, pretty much everything between the opening sequence and Bond's arrival at Casino Royale is an invention. And pretty much everything after that point, uh, apart from the sinking house in venice is pretty much taken straight from the novel it's just been modernized from 1953 to the 2000s um interestingly though the character of solange who is in those nassau sequences does appear in a, a short story called 007 in new york which we'll talk a little bit more about next week so much of as i say from the arrival in casino royale is as it is in the novel there are a few key differences though in the book, Le Chiffre works not independently but for Smirsch, the Russian Secret Service, and the game that they are playing is Baccarat or Chemin Fair. It's not Texas Hold'em Poker. And also, the character doesn't weep blood. That's very much a sort of Bond film addition. Uh, we get two assassination attempts uh, during the game, um, not the same kind of attempts that we see in the film. Actually, one of them is a car that explodes uh, in the streets of Lazo before the game. And then during the game itself, it's actually one of the henchmen of Lashifa has a concealed weapon and tries to use it to assassinate Bond at the table. It's not done with poison. We should also say the torture scene is a little different in the book. It's not a knotted rope, but actually one of those old-fashioned carpet beaters that's used to torture Bond beneath the chair. And also Vesper takes sleeping pills uh, to commit suicide and leaves a letter explaining the fact that she was a double agent in the novel. We don't have Bond discovering this and we don't have that sort of climactic action sequence where he sees and and indeed... um, attempts to revive the body as we do in the film. And also on that level, Mathis is not carted off in the book or suspected of being a double agent himself. Uh, the words smiets spionum, uh, death to spies, are carved into Bond's hand when uh, he's saved by uh, Smirsch's operatives in that torture scene who've come to eliminate Le Chiffre, introducing the, the idea of Smirch becoming a running villain in, I guess, much of the early Ian Fleming novels. Uh, there's no Mr. White either in the book. There is, though, an Adolf Gettler, uh, but he escapes justice in the book. He's not shot in the eye with a nail gun. Uh, the key thing that is also the same is the final line in the novel is that line, the job's done and the bitch is dead now, which in the books, as in the film, goes to explain Bond's later misogynistic attitude towards women. It explains his sort of prolific womanising as we go further into the Bond series. So that's pretty much it for By the Book*. Like I say, an incredibly faithful Fleming adaptation, again, leaving it as the origin story of how James Bond becomes 007 first literally and, of course, spiritually through the course of the action.
3: Okay, so we'll move on now to Now I Know You.
1: Now I know you. Oh, no. You're that secret agent, that English secret agent from England.
3: So this is my segment where we take a look at the callbacks to previous films. Now, of course, if this is a reboot of the series, Casino Royale. So technically, if you were watching them in order, you would start with this film and then watch the other ones afterwards. So everything would be calling back to this one. Uh, but if we go in, in chronological order of the, the date of release. So the first one was, of course, it is the first time that Bond tells a woman that he loves her since on Her Majesty's Secret Service and his marriage to Tracy. We also get Bond tendering his resignation in this film, as well linking back to Licence to Kill and On Her Majesty's. And uh, we get the return of the Venice location that previously featured in Moonraker, but thankfully there is no Bondola. That would be a bit weird. That would kind of take the emotional edge out of the scene, I feel, if uh, if he's just riding on the Bondola with her. And uh, we get a couple of uh, previous Bond actresses, some cameos in previous films. So Diane Harford from Thunderball and Sai Chin from You Only Live Twice, they come back as uh, much more mature ladies in this film, playing poker in a couple of games with Bond. Also linking back to the the first James Bond film of uh, Doctor No, it is the first time that we get an opening title sequence that doesn't feature scantily clad women, and we said that doesn't hinder it at all. It's my favourite opening titles of uh, any Bond film. And also linking back with that film, Bond's drink is spiked by Le Chiffre, of course, or his girlfriend, and that brings us back all the way to Dr. No where his drink is spiked when he's with Honey Rider. Also, I thought it was quite interesting that this is the the third consecutive Bond film that features torture in the story in some way. Die Another Day, if we had the North Korean torture scene Tomorrow Never Dies, we had good old Dr. Kaufman. Very different to Le Chiffre's simple torture. We never got to see Kaufman's complicated chakra torture. And also, as I think Phil mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we returned to the Bahamas' Paradise Island, that link with Nassau from Thunderball. And uh, oh, I did also like the uh, the little in-joke that we get, Bond mentioning the aliases that they're going to use Arlington Beach and he has a little joke that her one is Stephanie Broadchest. So a nice in-joke in the fact that this is a more serious Bond, that they are linking back to uh, the ridiculousness of some of the previous adventures. So uh, those are some of the, the callbacks. But, uh, did we get Adam and Phil? Any other callbacks that we noticed?
0: I guess the other thing is actually Venice is, of course, at the end of From Russia With Love as well. Uh, First in the hotel room fight with uh, Rosa Klebb dressed as the chambermaid. And then, of course, that end sequence where they're on an actual gondola and Bond throws away the the nudie video of him and uh, Tatiana. Uh, So a, a grave contrast in endings, I guess, between how that film ends very positively and very romantically. Whereas this one, of course, that's completely sapped out of it by the end
3: okay bro good and uh, oh i should probably mention the three-piece suit as well so when bond has finally become bond right at the end of the film he's wearing the navy version of sean connery's classic gray three-piece suit uh, so that was a, a nice reference back as well okay so uh, over to branch. what do we have this week phil in terms of audience questions
1: answer my questions quietly but clearly
2: I thought I'd start um, with a little article that came out recently regarding the story of the real James Bond. Apparently, in the 1960s, there was a spy who was sent to infiltrate the Polish sort of military um, intelligence who was actually called James Bond. What do you guys think? Do you think this was perhaps an ill-conceived plan to try and infiltrate an unknown power? I mean, it's astonishing. Had this been
0: in the 50s and he just happened to have the same name as the character in the novels that Fleming was writing, it would have been one thing. This is 64. This is Goldfinger's just come out. He's at the height of Bond mania. So I can only think the British Secret Services were thinking he's so obviously a spy that no one's going to think he's a spy. But what happened was Poland looked and thought, well, he's obviously a spy. So let's watch him.
3: Double, double bluff. <laughs> I think the, the article also mentions his wife said that she knew he was doing shady things. He was up to no good. Well,
0: <laughs> yeah, he moved there with his wife and son, and he didn't tell them that he was a spy. But, but yeah, that's a great thing. His wife clearly knew that he was up to dodgy stuff, and that apparently there was a Polish Secret Service couple living a couple of flats above them, and the, the husband was convinced that they were bugging the apartment.
3: <laughs> Although the son, nine years old, so I guess he, he's probably still alive, so... James Bond Sam, get in
2: contact with the show.
0: Oh, yeah, we'd love to hear from James Bond Jr. Apparently, he's from Devon or somewhere.
2: That's great stuff, sir. Um, just moving on from that, um, we have had a question come through as well. If we actually worked for MI6, what sort of jobs would we do? I know if it was me, I'd probably be the T-boy, so I don't know about you guys.
0: Well, I don't, I don't know who I'd be, to be honest, because I did once interview for MI6 and obviously didn't get the job, so I certainly wouldn't be an analyst or a spy or anything.
3: Maybe you did get the job, Adam. You you wouldn't tell us anyway, would you?
0: It's a double-double bluff, like being called James Bond so that people just think, oh, well, he's called James Bond so he can't actually be a spy. I'm just telling you all I'm not a spy so that you don't think that I am one.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure who I would be in MI6. Maybe Villiers. He's a bit of an annoying character, isn't he, in this film? I'd be him.
0: You've got the right tall height to be Villiers as well, haven't you?
3: He's kind kind of a bit smarmy and arrogant for no reason as well, isn't he?
0: I think I'd probably end up being the Tobias Menzies of uh, the Secret Service, kind of just the fucking Oh, I'm, I'm Bond calling again. He's in Nassau.
3: Well, Phil, you you mentioned earlier in the podcast you'd be Carter, wouldn't you? Frantically touching your earpiece.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd probably be very useless if I was out in the field. I'd be like, hey, what, hey, what, what do you mean? Is, there's this bloke looking at me. Do I need to follow him, or do I need to just stay here just, and then just have Bond on a on a really high perch, just getting re- gradually more and more irritated. So that's good, guys. So so moving on to the next question, just a really quick one. Um, Who do we want to actually see direct the next Bond film? Um, Obviously Bond 26 after Daniel Craig. Well, I know he's getting on
3: a bit now, but Martin Campbell has reinvented the series for Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig. So if he wants to come out of retirement, please, Martin, Bond needs you.
0: I mean, when Campbell directed Casino Royale, he was already, I think, the oldest man to direct a Bond film. So he's going to smash his own record and then some. He's like 78 now, I think. I know everyone says Christopher Nolan. I I always think be careful what you wish for. I'm sure he'd make a good one, but I sort of like that Nolan is out there doing Nolan films and I'd sort of sooner he keep on doing that than that and the next Bond film all be in one basket. I think Denis Villeneuve, who's currently finishing up on Dune and who directed Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival, I think he's second to Nolan, the best director of blockbusters we have at the moment. So I'd love to see him take one on
2: okay so so that was key branch for this week so so way, keep sending in your um questions suggestions and theories we do always um, love to hear from our cubbies and the wider bond community so please do keep interacting with us on our social media channels or you can send us an email to roger Moore's Cubbyhole at com.
3: so actually it's back to you again phil for the final segment which is the quiz.
1: No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong!
3: So you've got a bit of a reputation, haven't you, Phil? You're building reputation for yourself in these quizzes. What's this one got in store for us?
2: So I thought for this week, the quiz should be Casino Royale or No Royale. So basically, the format will be five questions each. I'm going to give you the name of a famous international casino, all you have to do is say yes or no to whether it appeared in one of the Bond films. So this goes back to Casino Royale backwards. Some of these are real-life casinos that appeared um, that don't appear in the films, should I say, and some of these are casinos that, that appeared in the films but are actually made up, if that makes sense. So basically... So, what? So, so some of them are real casinos that aren't in the
0: films, and the others are fictional casinos that are in the films? Yeah. But we don't have any real casinos that are real casinos in the film and some aren't fake casinos that aren't in the films. Do you know what, Phil? I was about to say, this is a really good idea for a quiz. That, that, that You said that and I was like, oh, brilliant. He's done a really good one. That's the best one we've had for weeks.
2: That's right. All you have to I'm going to read you the name of a casino. All you have to do is tell me if it appeared in the film or not.
0: Cool. I can do that. Sorry, mate. It, this is, does is sound that- like a great quiz, yeah.
2: Okay so Adam you're first up you have the white house yes
0: that is a fictional casino but it is in diamonds are forever
2: correct okay Martin your first question the casino de monte carlo can't remember i'll go no with that one it actually did it appeared in golden eye that was a scene between Zen top and james bond where he introduces himself so that's Incorrect for your first one, Martin. Adam, your second one, the Casino du Liban. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no to that one. Correct. Casino du Liban is actually a real casino, but it's never appeared in any of the films. Um, so that's actually based in Dubai. So Martin, your second question, the Hotel Palacio Estoril.
3: That sounds like it
2: might be the one from Licence to Kill. I'll go yes. You're correct. It is a a casino that appeared in the film. It was actually on the Majesty's Secret Service, but that is correct. So, Adam, your third question, the floating dragon.
0: Yeah, I think this is the one in Skyfall, unless I'm wrong.
2: You are correct. It's the one that Bond has his fist fight with the henchmen in Skyfall, and it's based in Macau. Uh, So, Martin, your third question, Marina Bay Sands. I
3: think that's in Singapore, but it hasn't been in a... Bond film, I go no.
2: Correct, it is indeed in Singapore, but it has never featured in the Bond films. Adam, your fourth question The Shiv Nevas.
0: I'm going to say no, I think that's a real one somewhere.
2: Oh, it appeared in Octopussy. It was the one where Bond plays the game with um, Shamal Khan. Shamal? <laughs>
3: you know, Shamal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> didn't didn't he sing the never ending
1: story song?
2: <laughs> From. <laughs> Sorry, I meant Kamal Khan. I'm so focused on my quiz, I forgot the name of the villains. Martin, for your chance to get back into the quiz, the Ocean Club.
3: Sounds very generic. I'll go no.
2: It was in Casino Royale. Yeah, that's in this film. That was in this film.
3: Yeah, should have got that
2: one. Right, so with one question left, Adam has three, Martin has two, so if Adam takes this one he's won it so adam your final question and to win this week's quiz the casino barden barden
0: no i don't think that's in a bond film
2: correct it's in germany but it's not in any bond film so adam has won it this week
3: so adam you are the winner so what uh, song would you like to play us out
0: well, I'm going to be a little bit naughty and uh, retrograde. For everyone who thought that we got through the entire Pierce Brosnan run without playing in his amazing SOS duet with Meryl Streep, we're going to have it now.
3: Excellent. It didn't need it needed to be in there somewhere, didn't it? So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. That was Daniel Craig's first Adventurer's Bond. We'll be back next week with Contra of Thanks, everyone, for joining. Do check out our social media pages. In the meantime, I was Martin... I was Adam
2: and I was Phil.
1: Where are those happy days? They seem so hard to find. I tried to reach for you, but you have closed your mind. Whatever happened to our love, I wish I understood. It used to be so nice, it used to be
2: so good.
3: We have M, her weird pronunciation of the tra- the, the trail's gone cold.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, but I, was say, I, I always thought she pronounced dispassionately in a, in a very odd way. Dispassionately. It's a very posh, sort of odd way of pronouncing it.
0: She gets a very quick line in, um, in the flat scene as well. You just killed a bomb maker. And why? It's very, very fast. You've got to really listen out for that one.